Chris Biddle and thank you for joining me and this is episode 89 of Inside AgriTurf. Now my guest today is journalist, author, television producer and broadcaster Anna Jones. Now in 2018 Anna set up a group called Just Farmers to establish a network of farmers who could respond to inquiries from the media in an honest, straightforward and no-nonsense way eliminating jargon that might be unfamiliar to journalists and the general public. And as you will hear, Anna has also written a book, Divide, which tries to make sense of the fragile and sometimes fractious relationship between town and country, communities that Anna herself has straddled. For here is someone who grew up on a family farm on the Welsh borders, with a heritage stretching back five generations, but also lived the city life, experienced the ignorance and mistrust of how our food is produced, and even joined a close friend on a march through Bristol with Greta Thunberg. Anna, many thanks for joining me, and that that gives a flavour of divide content, but let's start at the beginning. I read that you always wanted to be a journalist. Yeah, I, it was. I, I don't quite know why. I think it, somebody planted the idea of my in my head when I was about a twelve-year-old schoolgirl, um, and they we were in one of those lessons, and the teacher was asking, "What do you want to be when you grow up?" And a girl in my class said, "A journalist," and I just shamelessly nicked the idea. It was a it was a a real penny drop moment because I thought, well, I, I loved English, I loved writing and and uh, telling stories, but I was also always a people person and chatty, and I find people endlessly fascinating everyone's got a story to tell and um I'm very chatty and quite nosy so the whole <laughs> the whole package seemed to come together for me you've got once... all the credentials <laughs> yeah so once I decided that's what I was going to do I was pretty single-minded from then on uh, and uh, you took a degree did you in journalism I did yes and I think um you know I was one of the rare ones who knew at the age of 18 what job I wanted to come out of university with so, um, you know, a lot of journalists will do an academic degree, English or history or something like that, and then do a postgraduate uh, diploma in journalism. Um, that sounded like an awful lot of student debt to me. So um, I decided to skip the academic dusty library books bit and go straight in for the vocational degree. Yeah. Yeah. And where did that lead you to then, Anna? Do you, you, where, where were your first jobs? Um, I started off in local newspapers, um, so came sort of home to, to North Wales and worked for North Wales newspapers on the Wrexham Evening Leader um, as a graduate, and then to the West Midlands on the Express and Star in Wolverhampton. And I did that for about four years before I moved into television and got a job as a, a researcher on Country File at the BBC. And was, I was that only, a dream job? Or? It was at that time, yeah, because I, I was only 25 and I was a, a real sad individual. I used to watch Country File on a Sunday morning, which is where it, when it used to go out back then, and I would write the name of the producers down and uh, send them letters asking if I could come and do work experience and if I could work on the programme. And uh, eventually an opportunity came up and uh, I got my first contract at the BBC. And I ended up staying at the BBC as staff for about 12 years then, uh, working my way up from researcher to director to producer. And then I went freelance in 2018. Uh, and, And what are you currently involved in then? 
Uh, well, I'm doing a TV producer contract at the moment, actually, but it's with a, an independent production company um, called Big Circus, which is owned by Matt Baker, actually. And um, I'm working on a new series for Morphor, um, which is um, which Matt will be presenting. And we're following the final applicants for a National Trust farm tenancy and uh, seeing what goes into applying for a tenancy and just the sheer hard work and the sheer breadth of skill that you need to be a tenant farmer these days um, to try and raise the profile of tenant farming uh, within the minds of the public as well. Well, we're here really just to talk about uh, the uh, organisation that you founded, Just Farmers, and we will also come on to um, analysing your book, Divide, which I must say I've read and thoroughly enjoyed. Oh, thank um, you. But if we come back to Just Farmers, what, what was the catalyst for starting that then, uh, Anna? Well, that was most definitely doing an afield farming scholarship um, in 2016, 2017, uh, and where I looked at the relationship between farmers and the mainstream media. And uh, it was that journey over two years all over the world and the study that it produced that uh, made me realise there was a bit of a problem. And that maybe coming from a farming background and working in the media, I might be somebody that could offer a solution. So that's that was the catalyst for setting up Just Farmers. Is this a your, during your travels? Is is this a sort of worldwide problem? Communication between uh, the farming community and um, the, the urbanites, shall we call them, but the general public in in more general terms. It is in the Western world. It's very much symptomatic of urbanized, developed economies where the population has drifted from the land and has become a heavily urban population and um, have deep pockets and full bellies. Um, it's you know the, the luxury of a full belly. Whereas if you were to travel in developing countries, um, I studied in Kenya um, and a little bit of Tanzania for my Nuffield. It's a totally different story. Farming is very much in the DNA of the nation. So in Kenya, seventy five percent of the population makes some part of their living from farming. Uh, and if they don't, their parents will be farmers or their brother or their sister will be a farmer. So it's really deeply ingrained into the culture and everyone sort of has a an understanding of it um, and an incredible appreciation for food. So, yeah, it was uh, it was interesting to see the contrast between countries like the US and continents like Europe with sub-Saharan Africa. And the rationale for Just Farmers is to um, create a group of, of farmers who uh, are able to communicate um, w- with with the press, national press, local press. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, my Nuffield study uh, highlighted some problems and, you know, it wasn't just the fault of the media and those city types who don't understand us, which too often is the sort of eye rolling attitude of the farming industry. It's not our fault. It's all of them. They're totally clueless and they don't understand what we do. And um, I actually shone the light a little bit back on the farmers and, and the industry to say, well, you know, if you grew up in a city, why should you know? Do you know what a computer programmer does every day? Uh, like, no, you know, th- this expectation that people should understand farming and food production and they're stupid if they don't um, really, really gets my goat. Uh, so I wanted to 
you know, find people in the farming industry who are willing and able to be completely open about what they do, um, can can talk to people in an authentic and, and human way and connect with people um, in an informal conversational way rather than kind of trying to spin some industry messaging or some kind of PR or just banging the drum to back British farming and that kind of almost patriotic spirit I'm not convinced it cuts through massively I think something deeper and more human is needed so I'm trying to sort of build real relationships between farmers at the grassroots of our industry doing the job day in day out and uh, people that report the news and uh, in the media and hoping that by that relationship we can cut through to the wider public and how easy or or maybe difficult was it then uh to find good communicators amongst the the, the farming community? Farmers, um, there are many, many fantastic communicators, uh, but within the farming echo chamber, the, the difficult bit is finding those that are able to communicate with confidence outside of the bubble. And that's the challenge because I think... I feel enormously privileged, and I'm sure you do, Chris, that we get to hear these amazing stories within our industry because people talk to us because they trust us to understand. And, you know, they they talk to us with an openness that people outside the farming industry don't get to enjoy very often uh, because there is that suspicion and, an, and a, a chronic lack of confidence among many farmers, sort of a feeling of, or people won't find this interesting or people will think I'm just a farmer or I'm just stupid or something like sometimes some of the things farmers say when they start opening up about where their insecurities come from around communication are really upsetting. And we have to do a lot of work kind of building that confidence back up and really instilling in farmers and growers that, no, what you do is fascinating. It's vital. And you are the expert in what you do. Nobody on the planet knows more about your farm than you do. And the things that you could tell me about your soil or the field layouts or the mapping or the animals that you've bred over years, you know, that is fascinating stuff. We just have to find a way of packaging it and communicating it to the public in a way the public can connect with because they don't understand all the jargon that we use. Uh, and we use some crazy jargon in the farming industry. So it's about helping the farmers understand when their language is too technical or too alienating and helping them speak and communicate in ways that anyone would understand, whether you've grown up on a farm or not. Um, can I just throw one name in, which you're probably uh, expecting, Jeremy Clarkson. Oh, nice. Um, yeah. Um, is he a hero or or what is the opposite of a hero? Uh, Anti-hero, yeah. Oh, this is you're catching me at a good time for this because I'm about to write an opinion piece for Farmers Weekly on whether he's good or bad for the farming industry. And I haven't started writing it yet because I'm still mulling it over. But thinking out loud, I do recognise what Jeremy Clarkson has done for farming. And I do understand why our industry has kind of rushed to champion him because you know it felt it was in need of a champion and Jeremy Clarkson is a very high profile person with a lot of clout who who put the struggle the everyday struggle of farmers 
onto the mainstream map and into mainstream consciousness. So I get that. I do. But the idea that Jeremy Clarkson is a champion for anyone but himself is a naive and dangerous pitfall. And my worry is that by kind of gushing around this bloke and throwing awards at him, I mean, it was ridiculous. We were piling awards on him, like Farmer's Guardian, Farmer's Weekly, the NFU. Everyone wanted him to be their champion. And, you know, please take our award. And I just think that that sets us up for a fall because he is a loose cannon. What he has said about Meghan Markle is unforgivable. And as a woman, I, I find it absolutely despicable that he could even come up with that. I mean, what kind of person even thinks yeah. like that? I, it was it was disgusting. And um, I worry that we've put him on such a pedestal that could it reflect badly on us that we automatically agree. And and unfortunately, there are some outdated views within our industry rapidly falling into the minority, but they are still there. And does somebody like Clarkson embolden those that hold yeah. either misogynistic or views or whatever it might be? So um, I worry. I do. I, I think it's, you know, he's a celebrity at the end of the day and he's out for himself. Indeed. He's not he is not there for British farming. Like, no. yes. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I'm still formulating my thoughts. Uh, interesting. Well, I'll read that with a lot of interest. Um, take, um, tell me, uh, do you tend to be with, with the the farmers that you you've shall I say signed up or you've identified? Do you tend to be proactive or reactive t- to stories? I mean, uh, or is it a mixture? Then, uh, Anna. Well. We can only be as proactive as our resources allow. So we're a tiny pro- project and we, our editor only works two days a week. Uh, I have another career, so I'm yeah. kind of doing it in the evenings and weekends when I can get time. So it very much is um, a small project that's punching above its weight and doing really good work. I would say what um, a lot of it is we journal. There are about 300 members of the media who are registered on our site that come to us looking for a farmer to plug into a story they're covering. And we give them, they either find that person with their own login on the website, or we can do a shout out on our WhatsApps groups and go, Oh, can anyone help this country file producer? They're looking for X or we've had the mail on Sunday on, they're looking for Y. Can you help? Um, What we try and do proactively is these media briefings, which, um, Claire Hargreaves, who's uh, the editor covering Emily Davis while she's on maternity leave, uh, and I, we're going to try and get ahead of what we know are going to be big talking points and big issues and do a kind of sweep of quotes among our farmers and really kind of get the feeling on the ground. And And we think it, it, the media find it helpful to have almost like a big old vox pop that lands in their inbox. So rather than just reading industry press releases from the unions and the trade associations and organizations that might have a bit more of a political agenda, um, they can actually read just the views of ordinary farmers and it helps the sort of them to contextualize what it is that they're reporting on. So uh, we're hoping to do more of those this year. 
and, and given the toxic toxicity, if I can say that, um, of um, some of the debate that goes surrounds farming, are, are some of your contributors or some farmers in general are they are they afraid of putting their head above the parapet? Oh, gosh, they've been massively afraid of putting their head above the parapet. And uh, sometimes I feel I'm only scratching the surface. I would say that is very sector specific, though. So if you're lucky enough to be a beef and sheep farmer in a beautiful upland part of the country with plenty of scope for beautiful Instagram pictures, um, I would say that you're more likely to speak to the media because, you know, not only have you got the positive story to tell and there is a positive story whatever George Monbiot says about beef and sheep um you've also got the pretty pictures to go with it where it's really hard and where I have great sympathy is for those farmers that are running um indoor intensive livestock systems be it pigs poultry dairy um it's much harder for them because the pictures um, can be a little bit confronting to the public, particularly if they don't understand or are not familiar with it. Um, and sometimes for them, they look, they say, look, why would I want TV cameras in one of my boiler sheds? Like I, you know, I'd rather keep my head under the parapet. And that's a real battle for us at Just Farmers because it's those people running, um, the less pretty systems, inverted commas, that, I would say really need our help because they are up against activist pressure that will tell the story with or without their permission and will get the pictures with or without their permission. And if you're not, if you don't have a seat at the table in that discussion, and if you're not equipped to be open and proud of what you're doing, it, it, I would say that is not going to help their sector long term. And, uh, you know, and it's about being proud of what you do. And, I would say we we have got um, a broiler producer in one group of the farmers and he was like, I really don't want to be on Instagram. And I was like, you don't have to be on Instagram. I'm not going to make you put pictures of your birds on Instagram, but you can help in other ways. Just being on the end of the phone if a, a reporter needs a background research chat or, you know, maybe writing a blog or, or whatever. There's so many different ways you can communicate and being a social media influencer or having all these amazing pictures that's only one way of communicating. Um, so, yeah, we really do want to help farmers put their head above the parapet, um, particularly in those sectors where it's hard to do so. Yeah. And is there a common theme, a common topic that tends to land um, on your desk or the desk of your co colleagues at the moment? It's really interesting how it's changing, because when we first started, it was all about the environment and animal welfare. Um, now it's all about food prices and food availability and food security and uh, a, a quite a lot on policy as well, because obviously we're in such tumultuous times with ag policy. Um, so, yeah, price, food prices and also, you know, the impact of rising costs on farmers. The media have really caught on to that and they're very interested in it. So I would say those tend to be the overarching things and we had uh, we had uh, a farmer in just farmers called Johan Humphreys who's just become that well he was already well on the way to becoming a uh, a bit of an influencer and a bit of a social media star but now he's a general media star because he very bravely put a video out there 
saying that the egg shortages in supermarkets were not, as the retailers were claiming, purely because of bird flu and shortages of birds as a result of that. It was about, you know, not paying producers uh, a price that they can afford to then carry on producing the birds and the eggs. So um, that and that went that was huge. We've had so many members of the media wanting to speak to Johan. Um, and, you know, it just shows the power of being honest, I would say. Indeed. But and again, I saw an extraordinary clip, really. Um, I think it was on your your website, short clip of a farmer. Um, talking about how he, as a farmer, was producing the food, but he had to go to a food bank because of, of the prices that he was getting for the food he was making. Now, I don't know whether he was a a, a one-off or what he was, but um, that's quite a stark message, isn't it? Yeah, and he was actually uh, not through Just Farmers. It was a documentary that I made for the Food Farming and Countryside Commission um, uh, called God's Lone Country, which looked at rural crisis basically it it looked at people um hidden crises in our countryside whether it was the lack of affordable housing low incomes uh, or lack of public services and he was one of the case studies within that that clip has gone i hate the word viral but it's really gone big and um because uh, i don't think anyone from a policy background or a campaigning background can put it so eloquently into such a nutshell what the problem with our food system is. Um, and he did it in such a brilliant way, straight off the top of his head, straight from the heart. He was massively embarrassed by it because he felt, oh gosh, I've said too much. And afterwards, but at the time, and th- this is a, this all goes back to fa- the lack of confidence in farming. At the time, when we sw- when we stopped recording, He took a deep breath and he said, I feel like I've just had counselling. I feel like that was therapy. And I feel so much better for talking about those things and getting it off my chest. And he was just bouncing afterwards for talking about it. And then I think because it went, I don't think he expected so much attention. And then the Farmer's Guardian were on the phone wanting to interview him and Country File wanted to interview him and lots of other people. And I think it just freaked him out because he wasn't used to that kind of attention and doesn't want to invite that kind of attention. He just had an honest moment. And and that's what we're battling with farmers because they are so scared of putting themselves out there in a vulnerable way. But that's what connects with people. That's where the light bulb comes on and people sitting in their living rooms go, oh, my God, I've never thought of it like that. I get it. I get it now. And we can have all of the campaigns to eat British food you like, but without that compelling human emotional story at the centre of it, it just doesn't connect. And no. um, so that's what I'm always, I always show that clip to farmers and I'm like, do not be afraid of showing the reality of how things affect you. Uh, Cause it, we need that. How do you, um, how do you judge the success or otherwise of, of the campaigns? I mean, how do you measure uh, success? Is it, um, it obviously with social media at these days, it is it's easy to um, uh, count up likes and views and goodness knows what, which you can't do with press coverage quite so easily. But um, how, how do you measure it then, Anna? 
Oh, that's a really good question. And that's something our funders are really pushing us on. And I'm glad they are. Uh, so what we've decided to do, we thought about doing it straight media coverage. And we thought that just underplays what we do, because so much happens behind the scenes that doesn't necessarily translate into a podcast or a newspaper article or a TV program. You know, sometimes journalists will just ring our farmers for a chat. But those off the record chats are really, really important for helping that journalist understand the broad issues. So that counts. We believe that massively counts. Equally, um, you might have someone that goes through the whole research pro- process for a TV program and then doesn't make the final cut. You know, that's still been a huge experience for that farmer. And that farmer's contacts are still in that media company's contacts book. So anyway, we, we don't measure just coverage. We measure media connections. And that will be every query, uh, every email, every time we hook somebody up with a farmer, whether it leads to coverage or not. It's that those key little relationship building moments that we measure now, um, as well as making sure that the farmers let us know if they've been interviewed. And I have they're naughty sometimes. We have to give them a rap on the knuckles because sometimes you don't hear until about two months later that, oh, yeah, I was on Good Morning Britain. It's like, well, you need to tell us, guys. (laughs) This is So, um, but you know, they're busy. We get it, but we, yeah. we're very, we do hound them. Going, have you done any media stuff this week or last week or whatever? Sure. Um, yeah. Um, Anna, can I ask you about Country Far, which you've had quite a long association with? Um, how, how difficult is it for a, for a, a program like Country Far to strike a balance, uh, showing the acceptable and um, and hiding the less palatable uh, i i was talking about this to adam henson who was speaking at a conference that i was involved in and i said look i guess if somebody pitched a an idea for abattoir live to you it would get very short shrift um so but how difficult is that because obviously summer farming is it just people wouldn't like to see would they well and the caveat here is I haven't actually worked on Country Farm since 2021. So I've been uh, sort of about 18 months out of the game. So if anything yeah. is, um, but from, I would say it doesn't shy away from the less palatable. Um, I think people have an impression that it does because yes, most of the program tends to look pretty and beautiful as it rightly should for a Sunday evening primetime slot. That's the warm up to call the midwife. Like you wouldn't want to watch Abattoir live. Some people would say, call the midwife is abattoir life. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. yes. But um, I would say it's um, we have covered stories that are visually very challenging. I know Halal Slaughter. We've been into Halal Slaughterhouses. We filmed that. Yes, we have to blur the moment um, because, you know, you have to consider taste and decency. And this is going out before the watershed. Um, but, you know, we've. I can think off the top of my head of loads of stories that have shown um, the real grit and reality of farming. But because they're in, off, they're in the investigative slot, which is Tom Heap um, or Charlotte Smith presenting, and within an hour-long programme, uh, the investigation is about 13 minutes. So if you just happen to be making a cup of tea in those 13 minutes or you've switched it on and you've missed those 13 minutes, then you're going to get an impression that it's all alpacas and fluffy slippers and people running around the countryside having a lovely time. And um, 
the, my point is, is that it does not shy away from the serious issues or the unpalatable pictures. Um, and it, the journalism on Country File is second to none. I, I have never felt that it shirks on its journalistic responsibility at all. It just has, you have to remember it's Sunday night primetime. Um, you know, what can they do? It's only one that people seem to expect Country File to be all things to all people because it is the flagship rural affairs programme on the BBC. But it can only do what it can do. But what it does, I think it does brilliantly. Um, and I will always be a champion for Country File. And the last and the thing I always say is Country File was the first. It was the first programme that took the risk and took a punt and thought, you know what, I think the public will find the countryside and farming interesting. Let's put it to a primetime slot and see. And they were right. It rocketed up to like eight, nine million viewers. And from Country Files success, that's when we got this farming life and the mm. farmers country showdown. Yeah, or, yeah. Um, and I would argue Clarkson's farm. I yes. think we, we paved the way for that, <laughs> Jeremy Clarkson. Yeah. So, yeah. Anyway, that, that's well, uh, well. On this whole question of connecting, uh, connecting the farming community and food producers with the general public, uh, come on to the to, to the book you've uh, you, you wrote a couple of years ago, I, I think now called Divide, and and I've read it, and and I have to say it's a cracking read. And oh, congratulations, um, because it's full of fascinating characters. Um, but I came away with the impression that here is somebody extremely conflicted about what she feels you you have a farming soul because of your background but also it seems that you can also understand the the other side of the coin um so so what what drove you or, or, or what caused you to write it then anna you're absolutely right uh it was sometimes still is an identity crisis this pull back to rural roots but now finding myself to be an urban person, you know, and that and and that not sitting easily with me and actually being quite upsetting at times. Because if you feel if you've always identified as, oh, I'm a country girl, but then you look in the mirror one day and you think, actually, without realizing I've become a townie. And I'm fe- I feel that that is that identity is slipping away from me. Um, and that was that was when I pitched the book. I was working with a fantastic um, publisher, um, uh, Kyle Books in London. And um, it was, I I sort of poured my heart and soul into this pitch for this book. And I think um, Joanna, the publisher could see that. And that's why, because I was an unknown author, first time author. And I think they sort of took a punt on it because of that. And, um, and yeah, it has been really difficult, but writing the book helped helped a lot because I got to talk to other people who felt the same because I think I I I, I genuinely want to talk to a counselor about it it was that bad <laughs> really yes I did and um because I was really stuck I was in Bristol I'd built a career there I had a job there a relationship there I was very much settled there all my friends were but I just felt this niggling pull towards home and my roots and and presumably you were going out for a pizza or whatever fast food option was on your doorstep um every saturday night absolutely um without without a without a care of where it came from or how it was produced presumably 
Well, I always did have a care, but the people, <laughs> the people that I was surrounded myself with didn't. So, you know, and I, I, I would become the boring person at dinner <laughs> and kind of like talking to them all about how different different pig production systems or something. And they're like, <laughs> people don't want to hear this. It's Saturday night. They're having a beer. <laughs> Um, and yeah. you, you, you've promoted at a, a number of um, book festivals, I see, including Hay and, and so on. What, what has been the reaction from um, readers? I, I, I guess to think that um, the attendees generally at, um, at book festivals tend to, tend to be of a, a, a fairly well-read group and 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 they're not uh they're not from the fringes shall i say um but but what has been the reaction i I would um do you know what the most comforting and lovely reaction has been that i'm not alone and there's so many other people that have felt it and and the most rewarding thing is when i'm doing book signings people come up to me and they say i never realized that that was the thing that was bugging me and and they were like, you've really hit the nail on the head. I also grew up in a farming community or a, or a rural community. And I've moved to the city. Lots of people, the rural diaspora is huge. People people have been moving to the towns and cities since uh, the Industrial Revolution. And we're disconnecting with a part of ourselves generation after generation. And people have sort of, it's wonderful when they come up to me and they go, thank you for articulating this feeling. It's helped me understand myself and to realize that I'm a bit of an urban rural hybrid and those identities don't always sit well together and you can feel conflicted and torn in two. Um, and that's been wonderful because at first I thought, oh, God, everyone's going to think I'm this kind of navel gazing. Oh, poor me. I don't know if I want to live in the town or the country. God, first world problems. Yeah. Um, but actually it tapped into something that a lot of people feel confused about. And reading the book helped them make sense of it. And that I think that was the most rewarding feeling. I, I thought one of the most interesting observations in the book was um, a lot of us, um, I say us, but a lot of people now uh, like to look at the providence of the food that they're eating. Um, but but you claim that a lot of a lot of farmers actually, once the food or their produce has left the farm, couldn't care a hoot <laughs> where it goes to, who eats it, and and what happens to it. Is is that a, a feeling that you, you you get? Well, I know that's how a lot of farmers I grew up with in my community feel. Like you go to the market in Oswestry on a Wednesday, very few of those farmers would know how to cook a leg of lamb that they've produced. Like, oh, that's the wife's job. You know, absolutely. Or, or, you know, think of all the different meals and recipes that you might be able to use that lamb in um, or have a passion for that, eating that kind of food. Uh, Similarly, arable farmers, you know, wouldn't know how to make bread. And and, uh, this came from uh, George Young. I was talking. He was saying the amount of people that grow wheat day in, day out, year in, year out and still don't know how bread is made (laughs) and um, or care. Um, so and yes, you're right. It's it's mad that, you know, they are their sole pride and purpose comes from feeding a nation. And, you know, British food is is, is this huge thing that they want to protect and champion and they want the public to support, particularly now post Brexit. But when it actually comes to enjoying that food or learning about it or learning how to cook it or wanting to in, you know embrace it as a food culture nah not that interested yeah. <laughs> it's really um, weird 
During during COVID, Anna, um, there was a lot of debate and speculation that that actually, uh, gosh, we ought to be more self sufficient in food. Um, and uh, when the planes were being stopped and so on and so forth, um, has that feeling dissipated? Do you think um, we're only, I think, what sixty percent self sufficient, something like that, in food? Do you think that will ever improve? I think people are very supportive of homegrown food. But all of the surveys back that where, you know, if you ask British shoppers, they say they want British food. And I believe that they are sincere when they say that. Um, and I believe I'm a shopper. You know, I don't I don't shop on a lot of labels, but one that I absolutely do is British. I really am as diligent about buying as much British food as I can because I, I trust it and I can afford it. Now, this is. This is where it's going to be tricky is you can't blame people for being driven by price and they will be. And if the if the imported food starts coming in and it is a much lower price, but it looks just as good. I don't think you could blame anyone for, for making that choice, particularly at the moment. My shopping habits have changed I in the book. In the book, I, I you know, I was buying my artisan sourdough for three pound fifty every week. I don't do that anymore. I can't. I can't afford that anymore. Um, and I'm a middle income earner. Yeah. And I've already changed my shopping habits. And um, so, you know, it's really hard. So I don't want to stand here and and pontificate about how we must all buy local and things. I would. I want to, and I do it where I can. But you also have to survive in this world. So I have a great sympathy for the pressures on the British shopper. But Will we get more self-sufficient? I mean, we should. We absolutely could. And, you know, the government are making all the right noises about wanting to support British horticulture. You know, the amount of fruit and vegetables we grow here is ridiculous. We could do so much more. But you've got to have the political will mm. to get there. Yeah. Have we got that? You, you describe in the book a number of um, uh, contretemps, I think is a lovely word, but, but, but discussions and quite animated discussions you've had <laughs> with various groups. And I believe one of those was with the group. Was it with the, the, the uh, Nuffield uh, fellow yeah, Nuffield stu student, students yes. when you suddenly announced you were going to have a meat free day? And it, a meat free it meal? That, it wasn't oh, even a meat day. Meat meal. <laughs> um, <laughs> and it appears that the balloon went up. Oh, it did. Yeah, that didn't go down well at all. I mean, just to give you the context of where we had this discussion, we were we were on a global focus program. There was about eight of us traveling together for six weeks, studying international farming systems all over the world. And we just happened to be somewhere in Eastern Europe. We were so tired and jet lagged. I can't even remember where we were. I think we were in Frankfurt or somewhere. That's not even Eastern Europe. That was in Germany. Um, so anyway, we, we got to this restaurant and um we had been traveling hard you know we'd been to the us and across europe and we were tired and we'd been eating a lot of meat a lot and i remember that night feeling like oh god i can't eat any more meat i need something green <laughs> and fresh and um so anyway so i'm having a meat-free meal and then my downfall was saying and i think everybody should have a meat-free meal once a week and the farmers immediately leapt on the defensive because there was a an, a an Australian egg producer, a Canadian beef rancher, an Australian beef rancher 
and several other meat producers there and they really took umbrage with the fact that I'd said everyone should have a meat-free meal not in that meal that night but like as a society we should be open to having meat-free meals now and again and it just really yeah it got a bit silly and uh we had a big old row about it and and I think obviously the next day we all made up and it was all fine but it it really made me realize just how emotional this space is and when you have people swanning in and saying everyone should go vegan or everyone should have a meat-free Monday you know it made me realize you have to be more sensitive to that and understand that you're basically directly threatening someone's livelihood but equally that they need to be a little less defensive because I mean they overreacted they did yes (laughs) so you know on both sides there needs to be a better way of having these conversations and and there was this delicious story about you actually joining an extinction rebellion zoom call and 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 your uh perception was it it was rather like a parish meeting of of, uh, (laughs) very polite (laughs) <laughs> it was. i think those were your words but there you go and i think you know that that raised it was they they were a lovely group of people um and i again you know when it started talking about who wants to go and sit on a runway or who wants to go and sit on this road or whatever i realized oh, this probably isn't for me but one thing it also did it was an incredibly white middle class group of people who could afford the time to go and sit on runways and sit on roads. And um, it made me think that there is an inequality in our in our environmental activist and our conservation and our farming worlds where we are a little bit of a, an homogenous group talking to each other. And sometimes I worry that we're so out of touch with actually modern Britain and the people that who are, you know, Britain in 2023. And um, I, I sometimes despair a little bit at, at how unrepresentative these groups are. And uh, and and it and the go, same goes for the conservation world. My sister's a conservationist. She knows about that. And for our own industry, we're, we're hopeless. Considering we feed the nation, we are hopeless at representing that nation um, in terms of what we look like and who we are. Uh, so yeah, I, th- that was a that was one thing I observed about the Extinction Rebellion meeting. And um, you, you've mentioned his name in passing already, but um, do you find any merit whatsoever in 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 George Monbiot's uh, proposals to to ban effectively ban farming as we know it? There's merit in his case for change, most definitely. And I do, you know, when George Monbiot talks, a lot of what he says, I find myself nodding. In his particular solution that he's come up with recently, no, I don't think there's any merit in that. And I think it's dangerously divisive. I think we were starting to do some really good work between farmers and environmentalists, particularly around all regenerative agriculture and the rise of the agroecological conversation. You know, we were really starting to see people come together and work together. And then Monbio comes in with his very divisive, very simplistic manifesto and just throws a petrol bomb in it all and it yes it sells books i have seen people queuing around the block for his book literally queuing up and down a festival site 
snaking away and then he sold out of books so in that case uh anna is george cut from the same cloth as jeremy clarkson in their ability to attract attention yes they've both got that down very well i think that was a tactful answer Well, look, um, Anna, I've really enjoyed this this conversation. We've we've covered a lot of ground. Um, I, I, I think finally, uh, and I think you've answered this actually. And, and did writing divide uh, provide the cathartic release that, uh, uh, of your understandable conflicts ab- about both sides of the the the, uh, the food production argument? Shall I say? Yes, it definitely did because I feel more at peace now. Not and I feel uh, like I understand myself a bit better. And um, what's the word when something sort of crystallizes your thoughts? So before yeah. I wrote Divide, it was all flying around in my head and didn't really make much sense. And I think getting it onto the page and discussing it with people like yourself has helped me make sense of it. And once you make sense of something, you can accept it and then move on with your life. And I, I I have been able to do that. I feel much more calm in my mind and I've accepted that I will always be a farmer's daughter from a farm, but I've accepted that I have a new part of my identity now and and I love city and town life. You know, that that's nothing, you know, and you can have both, uh, but I must admit I have left Bristol and I've moved back to Shropshire, but I'm still living in a town. So <laughs> I'm closer to my roots but holding on to the urban life Your, well. your beliefs. <laughs> well, look, um, Anna, look, so many thanks. I, I really have enjoyed that. I, you know, I, as I said, I enjoyed the book. It was just full of, of, of delicious anecdotes, and which, which I really enjoyed. So can I thank you for your time uh, this evening, this afternoon, and uh, and all the best uh, with, uh, with Just Farmers and obviously with the sales of Divide. Oh, well, thank you, Chris, and thank you for your time as well. I, I really appreciate you inviting me on. Thank you very much. Well, wasn't that great? What honesty. What wonderful ability to understand that there are always two sides to a story. And Anna goes the extra mile to appreciate all the issues. Now, I can fully recommend Divide, and you will find a link in the show notes, as well as a link to Just Farmers. And next episode, I'll be talking to another former Nuffield scholar about the potential conflicts on farms and in family businesses over the issue of succession. So thank you for joining me. I'm Chris Biddle, and this is Inside Agriturf.